Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Okay, it's a two-for-one Shante Smalls special this month. Uh, as you know, Dr. Shante Smalls is a regular contributor to the podcast. She was uh, our teacher for last episode and for this episode as well. Uh, this was a talk that she gave at our weekly Dharma gathering, uh, recorded live earlier this week, in the midst of the seven-day retreat that she was leading, which just ended. Uh, as you know, uh, in addition to being a teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, Shante Smalls is also a scholar, a professor at St. John's University. Visit our website, nmy.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. September begins a new round of courses. If you're interested in meditation, learning to meditate, or, or formalizing your understanding of meditation practice, our introductory course called Meditation in Everyday Life begins September 6th. And our introductory meditation weekend called Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again, is happening September 14th, the weekend of September 14th, 15th, and 16th. For more information and to register, click the link on the homepage, ny.shambhala.org. Okay, here is Dr. Shanti Smalls with a talk titled, The Cradle of loving kindness. Which comes from um, the root text in Shambhala, the root Shambhala text, the letter of the Black Ashe. Okay, what can I say? Condense this. So, the letter of the Black Ashe is a text that the founder of Shambhala. Chogim Trimpa Rinpoche um, composed. Uh, he was, it was a text, hey Ashoka, um, which comes from the Buddha Shakyamuni, the historical Buddhist teachings um, in a cycle of teachings called the Kala Chakra, which were the teachings that given to uh, lay people, let's say, advanced teachings for people with, uh, in one of our um, texts it says, for busy people with bad memories and bad eyesight. <laughs> Something along those lines. So that um, a king, it said, named Dawa Songpo asked for teachings because his kingdom, which was the kingdom of Shambhala or Shangri-La, was, had a lot of factions, warring factions and a lot of unrest. And he had tried different means of uniting the kingdom and really felt there needed to be kind of an underlying, let's say philosophy or view larger than philosophy, a view. And he asked the Buddha, he supplicated the Buddha for teachings, and the Buddha said, okay. He said, I don't want to become a monk. The Buddha said, no problem, dude. 
I mean, <laughs> and Dawa uh, Sangpo heard these teachings and was inspired, brought them back to his kingdom, and they caught like fire, like wildfire. And these people practice hard, and they were able to all, all ages, all stations of life, touch, feel, and be uh, awakened, an awakenment. And then they disappeared from the earth. <laughs> Supposedly. This is the myth, the origin story of Shambhala. And so Chukam Chumpa Rinpoche, when he was very young, and he was still in Tibet, a monk, young child, he began to get visions of these teachings. Already as a child, he was very special, recognized as a very special and accomplished teacher. And when he fled with 200 or 300 or so people, uh, as a few days before the communist uh, Chinese invasion of Tibet, um, he ended up composing and losing these teachings. And then when he came to the West, receiving them again in his mind stream, which this is very common for um, people who can see, including musicians, artists, writers, tap into something um, beyond their own uh, limits of their own being. And so he introduced these teachings on Shambhala to his students who had been learning about more traditional Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and I think from what I've heard, some people were into them and some people weren't. But <clears throat> this text, the letter of the Black Ashe, um, is introduced into Shambhala training at the level of the sacred path, the second um, set of weekends, training weekends, where we've stabilized in our shamatha practice, our peaceful abiding practice. And if you want to do no more than that, no more is asked of you or needed. One can definitely practice shamatha for the rest of one's life and uh, wake up through looking, working with the synchronization of the body and the mind through the breath and looking and allowing things to rise and abide and dissolve. And then one, if one chooses, in this particular tradition, you can go um, a little deeper and begin to uh, touch into some of the Dungeons and Dragons aspects of the teachings. 
It's a joke. <laughs> I call it Dungeons and Dragons. Where it gets into the um, um, talking about the relationship between us, senses, and the phenomenal world more specifically. And this particular line really talks about that fearful mind, that mind of fear, fearfulness, put it, but I like to say place it, but it's put it in the cradle of loving kindness. That mind of fearfulness, put it in the cradle of loving kindness. And then there's instructions for how to work with the fearful mind over time through training. And I, this came to me as a theme for a talk because I think there are certain times in the world, at least looking at um, histories that have been recorded where the feeling or the sense of fear is palpable in the world. I think about growing up during the later part of the Cold War. And um, it, I just remembered a few years ago that we would do those drills where we would hide under desks in case there was a nuclear bomb. I'm not sure what that would have done, how hiding under a wooden desk would um, <laughs> I guess they had to do something with us, right? <laughs> and I remember once I was at a doctor's appointment, I was talking to a, a technician, and she was like, oh, is that Angela Davis on your, your tattoo? And I said, yeah, wow, how did you know that? She was Russian, and I said, how did you know that? And she said, oh, she was a great communist. I said, oh, yeah, she was, and we talked about Angela Davis, and then we, she was sharing that um, they, too, would hide under desks. I was like, what were we, we were, told, what were we, you know, they were too had the propaganda that the U.S. was going to bomb them, and we had the propaganda that then the USSR and now Russia was going to bomb us. So we were like, we had this moment where we both just, our minds stopped, and we thought about all the ways we had been trained. So that was a moment in my own lifetime that I was thinking about, um, and now, you know, we have active shooter trainings. I've been through many <laughs> work, it seems, a lot. And, um, but it's not just here, many places where there's, there's a palpable sense of fear, there's a growing, or there's a re, because this is a cyclical situation, there's a re-emergence of, um, um, let's say, fascism or, um, forced unification around the world. Think about, I mean, so I think about, um, what's his name, Duterte, Philippines, like brags about throwing people out of helicopters, drug dealers, but you know, and the kind of ways that um, there's a, um, loss of human decency 
we've become entertained by savagery. And in this particular country, that's the long history of this country, entertainment, you know? The lynching museum, <clears throat> I was reading some of the names of people lynched. And they don't only have the names and dates of people lynched, men, women, and children, but the amount of the mob that lynched them. A thousand people, five thousand people, ten thousand people cheering the hanging, um, disembowelment, burning of black bodies. That's the legacy of this country. As well as when Columbus encountered these lands, you know, chopping off the hands and feet of the indigenous folks in order to put them in their place. So fear is in the land. And so the mind of fearfulness is not only our own individual minds, but the collective mind that is geared towards fear and ripe for a tyrant. Tyrants don't take place in power where there's not a lot of fear. It's no mistake. So it's interesting that we, that mind of fearfulness, place it in the cradle of loving kindness. It's like, no, that mind of fearfulness, power through. That mind of fearfulness, buck up. Be a man or whatever that means. Ignore it. But the instruction is to put it in a cradle, to treat it like a baby that needs to be trained and swaddled first, calmed, pacified, in order to see what that child needs and how it needs to be reared. Because there's, we're at a point, and we've been at a point where our habits of um, distraction, which are fear-based, right? Because we're afraid to be with whatever's happening. It's, it's over, it's that these things don't work. They're not helpful. This is why many of us come to the meditation seat in the first place. It's because we sense something's amiss with how we're relating to the world. Maybe we have different words, but maybe we think we're, there's something wrong with us, or maybe we think, you know, 
we want to have a better, um, we want to reduce our stress. But then we, there's a little switcheroo that happens. We start meditating and we realize, oh, there's a, there's a deep well there. For me, I realized, uh, I'm not, I won't say that I, uh, I, I feel like I'm a pretty flexible person. I mean, I have my attachments for sure. And I have some atypical neurology that I can get fixated on patterns. But I'm pretty flexible. I do pretty well. I like ch adventures. I like change. Except for I have a chai every day. That's, I don't like when that's messed up. But <laughs> and what I've come to realize is that I, uh, there's no um, place in my life that I don't bring to the cradle of loving kindness. There's no thing that happens in my life that it's like, oh, I'm going to use conventional mind to work with that. Why would I use conventional mind when the creative loving kindness, when meditation is so much more powerful than my thinking? I've surrendered to the fact that ego can only get me so far. And I want to plug in to this endless power source, which is synchronizing mind and body and expanding out into space and seeing what arises. And that's so hard. It is so much easier to just argue in some ways and say, we're going to do it my way than to listen to another person go on and on about whatever they want when I just want to do my thing. You know what I mean? Like as if I'm the only person in the world with needs and wants and desires. I really get into that sometimes where I just want to bulldoze my way. But I found that no matter what the situation is, I actually need to um, not pretend that I'm not a meditator. And that doesn't mean by any means being perfect. It actually, to some extent, it means a lot of vulnerability and exposing the vastness of what I don't know. Being so curious about what's happening. Holding my tongue when I want to say something. until it's time to say something.
and in our own community here. Has anyone not heard about the organizational shakeup in Shambhala? Has anyone not know what that? Okay, good, great. <laughs> Everything's aces here, no. Awesome, welcome. Great. <laughs> we as a community can place our fearfulness into the, put it in the cradle of loving kindness. Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche is my teacher. And in that context, it means uh, not just, oh, that person's my teacher, but I, he's my guru. I took vows to follow his instructions. Some of you in this room did the same. But also that means that he has a vow to me. And I have to say I'm very, I have lots of different thoughts about um, how to work with very difficult situations. And lots of people have lots of thoughts about that. How do you hold, do you even want to hold your teacher, someone you love, a friend, whoever it may be, who um, has maybe harmed people or acting in a way that was unethical. Or maybe you yourself. One of my closest friends in the world works with um, felons. She's a public defender and I actually left that job and going back to work with Brian Stevenson who uh, has this incredible organization, the Equal Justice Institute, and he's the one that founded the aforementioned slavery um, museum in Alabama. And so she went to a fancy law school. She was like, I wanna work on death penalty cases. But she also uh, worked in the public defender's office in I think Dade County or Broward County, and so she worked with murder people. She worked with people who had committed murder, and people who had committed rape, mostly men. And she talks about her clients like people. 
And, you know, the, um, it's not about, for the most part, proving their innocence, but about battling the racist sentencing that, um, and bringing up mitigating circumstances, which there are many. And some of these cases were quite horrific. I mean, really bad. At the same time, it was providing, within this very um, s slave system, some little light of transformative justice. Right down to putting money on their books before the day was when, you know, they get charged like $3 a day by the jail <laughs> for the pleasure of being imprisoned. And then if you don't use your money in your commissary, the jail takes 50% of it. So right down to her being able to tell them, use your money by this day, so they could buy toothpaste for $7 and underwear for $20. And in the, an enlightened society, in Shambhala, we don't, throw people away when they commit crime, when they do harm. We don't shun people who've been harmed and tell them, oh well, too bad, get over it. And we somehow have the heart to be able to hold a person who's been harmed and a person who's harmed in the same community, maybe not in the same room, And I've been really disturbed because I don't see much of that in our community. And I get that we're angry and we're sad and we're frustrated, but where's the reaching out to the, these women and men who've been harmed? Where's the reaching out to the women and men who've harmed people and saying, we want you to get help. Here's some resources. We know resources. Instead, it's ego and let's do this and let's be like that and do away with that. And all that's good. It exposes some of the fault lines that have been there in our community, some of the disappointments and resentment that's been festering but it actually is not held in a container of loving kindness. So it's just conventional mind coming up with conventional solutions. And that can only produce conventional results. There, it takes some bravery to actually allow space to say, how, what does transformative justice look like? It starts with loving kindness. It starts with non-duality. It starts with holding that feeling of rage or anger or extreme disappointment and trying to see that person still as a human being who has their own trauma. I mean, is there anyone among us who there's got to be someone in each of our lives who, when they think of us, they don't think good things. 
right? And it may be, oh, here's the story and here's the situation, but we know we have our fixed stories about certain people, so people have fixed stories about us. And maybe we didn't do sexual harm, or maybe we didn't do, you know, punch someone in the face or something, but maybe we were, we lied, maybe we cheated on someone. Maybe we um, gossiped about someone and they heard about it, and it really hurt them. Maybe we lied about someone. Maybe we took something that didn't belong to us. And on down the line. So what I'm saying is here is that the container, the context of Shambhala itself, the lineage, one is the teachings of the Buddha. These come from that. They're not something Chogam Chimpurushe made up on a lark. He was plugged into something. And we don't get to choose, oh, now I'm going to deal with this with my other set of skills that failed us in every other aspect of our lives. <laughs> and I, I say this because I want to be genuine and I want us to be genuine. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the future of this organization. I know the lineage will is everlasting, no problem. I have no doubt about that. Whether we're practicing in a Shambhala center or not, the teachings are unshakable. But it's time to get real about practice and not just um, being pretend meditators. Do you know what I mean? Like, I meditate. And then it's, we forget about it to the next time we meditate. I'm so much, I do yoga. I'm so much better than other people. We don't say that, but maybe we think that. And yet, we act just as degraded. And this is not about being perfect, but it's about having a sense of self-reflection and humility about our own humanity. Having a sense of when we know there's a time for um, justice, that that justice comes from a place of tender heart, from a place of brokenheartedness, not from a place of we've got our pitchforks and our um, torches out and we're ready to destroy Frankenstein's monster, you know? We, those of us who practice, have the opportunity to be a part of what saves the world. Because we don't just practice for ourselves, but we practice for all sentient beings, past, present, and future. And I've been feeling a tremendous amount of my own frustration with my own um, habits, 
of distraction. And wanting to really uh, allow myself to um, go to that next level of um, practice and study, which is to say to, you know, not be ashamed or afraid of this incredible gift I've been given, this, this, this teachings that I've been given. And I think it's very easy to, um, I don't want to pretend. And I think that it is time to just practice and to be in community around that and to not hide from the world but to be in it and just not know what's going to happen. That's, we never know what's going to happen anyway, you know? No idea. I remember the first time I heard the wisdom that death is certain, but the time of death is uncertain. I thought, oh man, these Buddhists are such downers. Like, who wants to think about that shit, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, it's just facts, son. You know, it's just facts. That's facts, you know? We're all going to die, and we don't know when. That's facts. No lies detected, you know what I mean? That's Dharma. And it's a deception to live as if that's not the reality. And it actually drives us to not enjoy our lives in a weird way because we're avoiding. That fearful, that mind of fearfulness put it in a cradle of loving kindness. It's safe, it's stable, it's a sense of ease, wisdom. And we touch that place by taking our seat, synchronizing mind and body through the breath. You know, there are particular practices of metta loving-kindness practices, or Maitri, compassion practices, but we can just offer loving-kindness through practicing shamatha, peaceful abiding, or calm abiding. And from shamatha, sitting, 
with our boredom and our aches and our thoughts and our sexual fantasies and our resentments and our fear and our whatever, our hunger, sometimes we get a gap. It's just space. And it's freedom. And then we're like, yes! And then it's, you know, we close it, but we get a little, we milk that, right? And then we get a, in that gap sometimes some wisdom arises, some insight into our minds or pattern or even the nature of things. So I think I've said enough. I'd uh, love to hear any questions or thoughts you have. Thank you so much. Um, um, your, your talk, the examples bring up for me this idea that I've, I, have, I feel very hurt by something that someone has done. I feel betrayed, I feel let down, and I feel incredibly angry. Um, and I'm aware of all those feelings, and somehow instinctively I, I've known that I shouldn't just throw this person away, as you said, we don't throw people away in an enlightened society, don't throw away what this person has represented to me. And yet I'm, I'm, I think I'm at a place where I can accept that I'm not able to hold this person or what they represent in a cradle of love and kindness, but that may come. And I'm okay with not knowing that, but just being at a place where I'm incredibly angry and hurt and being okay with that too. So I don't think that's a question, but just a response to what you said. Thank you. I think one of the ways that I've found it really helpful to work with um, when I'm really hurt by something someone does and I can't, um, and let's say it wasn't done to me, because that, you know, um, is to actually turn my attention to the people who were harmed by that person rather than being self-indulgent about my feelings, but what if I can turn my attention to the people who were harmed, right? And actually hold them in the cradle of loving kindness. Forget about the perpetrator, but think about the people who were harmed. That does something to decenter me and my feelings, and it actually it kind of makes me, me the cradle. Right, um, rather than trying to generate some uh, feelings of love and kindness for, you know, we're too angry or whatever, but it's like, okay, I'm gonna work with the people who were harmed. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your talk. It really spoke to me, and uh, I'm gonna try to say this in a way that makes sense or ask it, but how do you hold that cradle of kindness and openness for someone that, that didn't hurt you once, but continually does do that and at the same time is ignoring it. So, and in this world, I feel like there is a lot of that. And if you have someone who is close to you and your family where 
that is happening, how, how can you hold those two things together while still honoring yourself? Because yeah. I don't know how to do yeah. that. So you said the person is ignorant or they're ignoring it? Ignoring it. Ah, so they're aware that they're doing it? Perhaps. Okay. <laughs> or they think it's okay. Okay. Yeah. So the um, cradle of loving kindness is also incredibly intelligent. And so there's nothing in the, I mean, that I've encountered. Uh, all Buddhist teachings have intelligence. And so we don't have to pretend we are somewhere we are not. So I like to use uh, distance as a gauge, how close you know, do you want to come to a situation or a person or how far? Sometimes it's the cradle of loving kindness is like a net on a stick. Or something you like send to them in the mail. <laughs> like, there you go, there's a cradle of loving, a picture of a cradle of loving kindness. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to um, be a doormat or to accept abuse, that's not intelligent, compassion or loving kindness has intelligence to it. So you understand who's, um, like in Maitri practice, you even work with these, it, with no dualism, that's the ultimate view, but you work with these relative categories of a hero or a mentor yourself, a loved one, a neutral person, and an enemy. So you understand that you have categorizations of people already in your mind. So you don't exactly work with a neutral person the same you work, way you work with a loved one. And you sometimes, you know, you know the, the, um, the hero or the loved one can sometimes be the challenge, the loved one you don't have a problem with. The enemy sometimes is, um, you can just offer that to them from a distance. You don't have to, um, if someone was like punching you in the face, you wouldn't be like, eh, loving kindness. You know what I mean? You would cover your face and you would get away from them. So it's, it's, it's using your intelligence and being like, that's not okay. No but also not fixing in your mind that they're just a bad person. It's like this person, we can't, I can't be in close proximity to that person. Is different than they're bad. And why I say it like that is not just semantics, is that it, it pulls you out of being um, fixated on them. And in some ways giving them power. For instance, I used to have this little trick. It was a little bit cruel, but I would do to like so-called progressive whatever friends, I'd just be like, Trump. And they'd be like, ah, and I'd be like, ha, 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 you know? <laughs> I'd say how you, don't let anyone steal your mind. Don't let anyone steal your mind. You can have all the feelings you want about people, but if, someone, if someone's name sets your teeth on edge, 
they've got you. That's different than this, this thing is unjust or this thing in my view is wrong or this needs to change. That's a different thing than like, they just have your mind. That's like a whole, um, that's a terrible place to be. So we don't like, there's nothing about these teachings that's about put yourself in harm's way. If you have questions about that, try to put the relationship in terms of physical danger. Be like, okay, this person is like a bus, a moving bus at 50 miles an hour. Would I stand in front of it? No. I would wait till it stops and I would get on it or whatever. So sometimes if you put it in terms of like physicality, it's like, okay, I know or like an animal, oh, it's a turtle, or oh, it's a piranha, you know what I mean? And then it's like, okay, now I know how to relate to that um, differently. Um, so I, there's a little, I think this is where the interaction of Orientalism, right, um, uh, obscures the teachings, where we like go to this place of making it so mysterious and so like, instead of like it's common sense that's been passed down for 2,500 years. And I think sometimes we think, oh man, this is about floating, <laughs> when it's about instructions on how to live. So we have to shed some of our um, cultural uh, upbringing that we've been steeped in that makes it hard for us to hear wisdom as intelligence and not as, um, Self-sacrifice. Yeah, thank you for your questions, good one. I've been uh, Dr. Frankenstein and I've been the monster in my life. And uh, I've had, people have done harm to me, the same person that's done something beneficial to me and also has done harm and vice versa. Yeah. And it gets, it gets very confusing. You know, it's sort of like you, you know, you, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you take a position? Do you not take a position? Do you kind of bob and weave somehow? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what we mean by harm. Because there are, you know, degrees of harm. Are we talking about the kind of harm that occurs between you know, um, uh, misunderstanding, right? It's a level of harm, miscommunication. Um, or are we talking about um, levels of harm that have to do with um, interrupting people's ability to enjoy their lives? Yes. Which one. is, you know, which is a, yeah. a more serious. And I think we have to also reflect on, are we really harmed by something or do we not just like it? Is it are we just uncomfortable, right? Because uh, for, I got an email from someone the other day that was like, I harmed you. And I was like, what? I don't know you did. You know, like I've not, I was like, this is crazy. No, this is crazy talk, you know what I mean? And it was like, what they did was um, a little fumbly 
like slightly unskillful, but there was no, there was really no harm and no foul. But there's sometimes a sense that, um, we've, we've, you know, overstepped a boundary, which is different than, uh, than say we've really, you know, interrupted someone's like life or like, um, ca cause them pain in a way that makes it, um, you know, functioning in certain ways challenging. But I, you know, relationships have conflict. That's not, always harmful. It's just conflictual. And we have to be grown-ups and learn how to be accountable for our own emotional content. And, um, you know, sometimes take the conversation off text and <laughs> have it be verbal <laughs> rather than on text, you know, and just use our intelligence. Is this a relationship that's actually um, producing and reproducing patterns that are getting in the way of us both, um, you know, being useful in the world. Because that, that's sometimes we're in quote unquote toxic situations for yeah. sure. But we have to use our intelligence, and that's um, that's checking in. That's every day. There's no like, you know, you don't just set it to seven and you know, or cruise control, and that's it. Right. It's relational. Thanks, Pete. Uh, I, something I just don't understand. Um, I totally agree with everything that you say. Uh, but, and I'm not part of this lineage. So I'm outside of looking in. I, 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 from what I infer, something has happened between a high-level teacher and a student. Uh, but I totally understand there's not a perfect world, and it, uh, nothing there's a, uh, a microcosm of what goes on in the world. So I know that not everyone is perfect. Uh, so I have compassion that there was a, a, a teacher probably didn't do, that didn't do something correct, and there was a student that was sort of a victim. I can offer compassion to both these people, uh, but I don't, I don't see why it would stop the, it would, stop, it would change the way people would see uh, the organization because you have a beautiful law. I'm sure most of the people in here are very nice. I'm sure most people <laughs> in the organization are pretty nice. So I'm not gonna let this one simple imperfection that happened where I know that there's imperfection going on all over the world. Uh, I don't wanna sound like an insensitive person, but, yeah. but the information is probably good and I wanna be here and I'm not gonna let some silly thing that a teacher did and some silly you know, thing, well, thing that happened really affect the way I view the place because we living in it to begin with. I just turned on the news today. Two, two high-level administrators being, uh, have admitted guilt to like some really, really major things that are going on in the country. So just help me understand that. Yeah. Like, why would people be so wound up when we know we live in an imperfect world already? Why can't we just offer the compassion freely? I mean, even if this guy walked into the, a party, it's a big room. You have to wind up Well, I think it's um, more challenging when it's the lineage holder. 
And Sakyong Mi Parmenpache is such an interesting human being because he is so kind. And in some ways, I experience him as very innocent. And that's a funny thing to say about someone who has allegations of sexual misconduct and abuse. So it's not just um, relationships with students, which he, you know, had, you know, um, up, up and up sort of boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. There's, there's an inherent power dynamic. So that's, a, that's ethical misconduct. Many of these teachers, you know, have had that. Some of them have that step down. But then there's some more serious allegations that have to do with, that cross a line that's, um, that's just harmful, right? Not necessarily, there's nothing so far that's been breaking law, but that's clearly harmful. And that he said, like, I, 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 I know that I've hurt people. And I think when it's a lineage holder and also when it's a spiritual community, although it's funny, we're like, ha ha ha, have jokes about certain other religions and their um, institutionalization of sexual abuse. We joke about that, right? There's like, um, and so I think there's um, a gap for some people between um, how they experience the Sakyong and some of these, than some of these allegations. So that's one set. I would say another set of people never really liked him and were look, you know, are kind of were looking for something to. This was the fodder. This was the you know material they needed. And I think for other people, it's shaken their faith. We all, we all respond to news very differently, and um, I. It's also not just him. So there's a organizational problem with sexual misconduct and abuse. That's part of the issue. Um, and so I think it's a reckoning, uh, and not just sexual misconduct, but also different kinds of things like um, institutionalized racism within the organization and patriarchy and misogyny and other classism. So things that are prevent people from taking their seat. Um, ways that people have taken credit for work that other people have done and then ran people out of the organization. So there's some organizational problems. Now, I think then people also have different investments. So for me as a Samaya student, I feel that Vajrayana students are, not to say don't have any, we're less vulnerable in a way. Students who are newer have a more, I think are, are more vulnerable. Just talking to my own students and they just feel like disenchanted and they haven't had um, the time and the, uh, investment and they f they feel confused and so that it's appropriate to meet people where they are and it's appropriate for me to hold space for a variety of feelings and experiences um, without that doesn't 
change my experience, but I can, because of my vantage point, I can hold space for people who feel very, very angry and, and for people who feel very confused and for people who feel more blase. I think that that's important to be able to um, not have a party line. And some people can practice no problem without any, that I'm not one of those people. You know, I've had to, I've had my own cycle of emotions and feelings. Um, and it's actually good, particularly in a meditation context, to reflect on your relationship to something when you get new information. That's actually really good. It's a good thing. And actually what I've seen is like um, a kind of clarity for a lot of people of like their commitment to practice. And um, that, that's and a commitment to the lineage, whether or not they feel committed to the organization. And those are two different things. Hi, thank you. Um, it's actually that question was really interesting because I certainly was thinking about all of the issues that came up before I came today. And I, um, as you were talking earlier, um, the things that stuck out for me and what's been going on in my life these days um, were um, being curious and uh, holding your tongue. Like, mm. because when I was thinking about the issue of uh, someone who has been hurt versus someone who has hurt someone else and holding those people in the same space as humans. Um, I'm very near to a situation where uh, someone has, I have been hurt, but now see myself hurting other people mm. just like with my words mm -hmm. mainly. And so um, that's why for me it was very powerful and, and I had recognized previously that I really do need to stop and think because that time gives me a whole different perspective on, on how I want to react and then I am able to um, approach the situation differently and or be at least closer to holding all of the things in the same plane. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I realized with the last comment that, um, and your response, the way I approached this situation was in a sense of curiosity because I don't know a lot about the lineage in Shambhala. Mm -hmm. And um, so even the fact that there is a lineage is sort of curious to me, mm -hmm. um, or I'm curious about it because... Um, one of the things we talked about is not giving someone too much. You, you don't want to focus too much on, on someone else, it seems. Um, and I was also curious about the response in this community. Um, and for me, it, it's interesting. I mean, clearly it got brought up and there was not, it didn't seem like people here were shying, including yourself, shying away from having this conversation. And for me, that was really important because I also had the thought like, okay, this happens in, um, we're seeing it come out 
in many different communities. And for me, one of the important parts is uh, what is the response of the people within that mm. community? Um, so yeah, just a lot of really interesting ideas, not really a question, sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> I think one of the th things that you said that um, brought up, uh, reminded me is like, um, not pretending that we don't, remembering that we each have power and not pretending that that's not the case and that, you know, like, we have power of words, you know, of body, speech, and mind, right? And I think just recognizing that um, is helpful in being able to see how we can be um, um, perpetrator and victim. You know what I mean? It's like it's a it's not um, one way. At the same time taking time to feel the poignancy of a situation and not, um, to me, why this feels different than Harvey Weinstein is, this is my teacher. It's like, a, you know, and it's a, 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 it's very, it's painful. Um, at the same time, I have these teachings that allow me to practice. So there's a, there's a kind of, um, container. There's a container for it. And I think it has to be or can be different than the sort of conventional way of dealing with, with things, which is to say Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby is terrible. And it's like what they, the things that these people have done are pretty horrible. <laughs> and at the same time, they have humanity that's been tainted. They've lost contact with something that allowed them to be um, able to view women as um, humans. You know, they became predators rather than men. And so I think the commonality or the commonness of um, exerting power through sexuality is a big problem in our world. Like that is a, that is a go-to for many people and it's devastating. And I think we can wag our fingers, but the problem isn't stopping. And so how, what are we going to, how do we relate with this serious, uh, issue because say I leave Shambhala, ah, the place is tainted. Well, I work in academia. <laughs> you know? And there are people who have said to me, oh, so-and-so did this to me when I first came. You know, it's like, it's not, I live in the United States. And so at some point I have to stop running. And there may be, um, for some people it may be not workable here, but they may do the work elsewhere, but it's, it's, there has to be a time where I say, okay, I'm gonna do the work. And for me it's like, okay, here. Thank you all for being here, really appreciate it. Um,
I really appreciate it. And if you would like, let's uh, end with a bow. Thank you, Shante Smalls. And uh, thank you for leading our retreat this year, our seven-day retreat. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Again, Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again, is happening the weekend of September 14th. And our introductory meditation course, uh, four-week course, uh, is beginning the evening of September 6th. It's called Meditation in Everyday Life. Our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Come. Okay? See you next time.